Good morning, Bethany family. Um, today we're going to give Pastor Stephen's voice a rest. Um, and so he gave the young buck the opportunity to come share with you this morning. I'm excited to do that. Oh, thank you. It's very kind. Um, so we've been going through the Gospel of John. Um, and the Gospel of John has sometimes been referred to as the Gospel of Belief. John is very forward in his purpose for writing this book. Um, and this is explained in John chapter 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is very clear about the purpose for writing this gospel. Um, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we may engage in everlasting life by believing in his name. Throughout this gospel, John recalls many signs that Jesus did as proof that his claims were true, that he was indeed who he claimed to be. So we see this constant dance between signs or evidence um, and faith or belief. Um, a way I like to think about it is we see this tension between faith and reason. And for those of you who may know me a little more, um, my training is in Christian apologetics. Um, Christian apologetics deals with the defense of the Christian faith. So how we know Christianity is true and trustworthy, how we, how we know that we can trust the Bible, um, ways that science proves that um, there is a creator and that there is intelligent design in the universe. So when I recognize these tensions between evidence and belief or faith and reason, I get excited. But as we take a deeper look into the gospel um, and really into the biblical story as a whole, we see um, that the Bible reveals a deeper truth about humanity, that we're not as logical as we may claim to be. Even though the evidence or the signs that John speaks of were essential in the preaching of the gospel, they were not ultimate in inspiring faith. In other words, Christianity doesn't have an evidence problem. Humanity has a heart problem. The title of my message this morning is Seeing is Not Believing. Seeing is Not Believing. My hope is that this will be a helpful complement to our study of John um, and help us respond to God in faith as we continue to study um, with Pastor Stephen on Sunday mornings. The goal of this, uh, this message this morning is simple. Um, my encouragement to you is that you should trust God even without the evidence that you think you need. You should trust God even without the evidence that you think you need. Now, if you're like me, you might hear that um, and become a little uneasy um, or a little uncomfortable. I'm a logic guy. I'm a reason, evidence guy. That's the way my brain works. And so when I hear that, that sounds a lot to me like blind faith, like blind belief, um, that I shouldn't believe without asking questions. Or I shouldn't believe without the necessary evidence. I should just trust. And so that, that makes me uncomfortable. And when I was an atheist or an agnostic, um, I would have proudly asserted that this claim or this thesis for this morning was a cop-out. It's easy to say to believe God without evidence, right? That, then that, that doesn't mean that you have to give evidence for God's goodness or even God's existence. Now, um, in my journey, eventually God actually used evidence to soften my heart, and that's how I came to faith. But satisfying this reason part of my brain, this desire for the logical, the, ev the evidential piece of Christianity, um, it didn't replace belief in my heart. Rather, it prepared my heart to believe. So this morning, first, I want to get a little nerdy, okay? So bear with me. We're going to get into some um, philosophical, apologetic type stuff. I'm, I'm not going to go too long. Um, just be blessed that you're not in my Sunday school class because my students have to endure this every Sunday. Um, that's why I bribe them with muffins from Costco. Um, we don't have enough muffins for you guys this morning, so I apologize. You won't get that bribing. Um, and then after I go into um, a little bit more detail about the, um, the relationship between faith and reason, 
um, and some of the proper definitions of faith and reason, I want to expound on the responsibility of us as Christians to respond to God with trust, especially when we don't see the evidence that we think we might need. Okay, so um, with regard to faith and reason, unfortunately, in our culture today, when we hear the term faith, um, especially in a religious setting, we may think that somebody is referring to um, only subjective feelings and emotions. And because of that, we may think that when we regard faith, we're not talking about anything that is dependent on reality or anything that is dependent on discerning what is true, which we may call reason. Now, um, faith is indeed a subjective experience in our heart, right? We, we experience faith, we put our trust in God, we put our trust in people. Um, but I think because of the culture we live in, it's easy to think of faith having no relationship with reason or having no relationship on the reality around us. Take this example um, by Professor Steven Pinker. Um, now, I don't mean to pick on um, Mr. Steven Pinker. Um, he's a brilliant guy, um, but I think the way he... Um, the, I think this quote epitomizes the way our culture um, poses faith and reason against each other as if they're at odds. He says this, The juxtaposition of the two words makes it sound like faith and reason are parallel and equivalent ways of knowing, and we have to help students navigate between them. But universities are about reason, pure and simple. Faith, believing something without good reasons to do so, has no place in anything but a religious institution, and our society has no shortage of these. It appears that by the definitions that Steven Pinker places on these words, that we are forced into an ultimatum, or a, a, a dilemma to, to choose. If I am a person of faith, then I cannot simultaneously be a person of reason. Or another way to put it, is that faith cannot be um, a reasonable exercise. By definition, if faith is believing things without good reasons to do so, then faith is, will always be at odds with reason. And so maybe we're sharing our faith or, or maybe we're trying to explain how we believe what we believe and why we believe it. Um, people may, you may be trying to speak in a reasonable way, but once people hear things about God or spiritual things, they immediately associate it with something like a dream or a fairy tale or something that takes place in the subjective realm of the heart. But we need to ask the question, is this definition of faith, as Pinker puts it, believing something without good reasons to do so, an accurate one? Is this the way that the Bible describes faith? Is this the way that Christianity has understood faith throughout the ages? To help us clarify what we mean by faith, like good Bible-believing Christians, we are going to turn to Google. <laughs> joking, you'll see where this is going. The definition of faith according to Google um, and this is really according to the Oxford Dictionary, gives us two uh, definitions for faith. If you were to look it up on your, on your smartphone right now, these two would come up. So the first one is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Now, this first one seems good, and I'm sure that even Professor Steven Pinker um, applies or exercises this type of faith. For example, he has to place his trust or confidence in his scientific colleagues um, that are making um, hypotheses or conclusions about their findings. So he has to place his trust in them that they're telling the truth and that their findings are good. Or even so, he might place his trust in gravity, that gravity is going to work the same way it did yesterday, because there's no guarantee that it will. But we have complete trust or confidence in things like that because of their trustworthy nature. So that, um, that definition of faith is not a, um, we'll say, um, necessarily a religious one. Now the second one is interesting. Second one says, strong belief in God or in the doctrines of a religion based on spiritual apprehension rather than proof. 
This assumes that this form of faith is not on proof, right? Um, and, it, and it ties or links it to the subjective experience of the heart of, or our, you know, of our mind or our emotions. My point here is simply that Steven Pinker's di- distinction and Google's second definition are, are simply unnecessary. Much like the scientists um, who trust his colleagues that they are telling the truth about the things that they have witnessed, so too did the early church trust the eyewitness testimony of the, of the disciples who walked with Jesus. For example, we can see all throughout the New Testament things like this. Peter, writing in 2 Peter, he said this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Luke wrote this in Acts, Jesus presented himself alive to them after, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. John also records Jesus saying this in John 14. Jesus says, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. All throughout the biblical story, these accounts demonstrate that quite simply, faith and reason are compatible. Um, these, These authors, and especially the early disciples, were proclaiming a Jesus that they themselves walked with, touched, ate with, they, they, they traveled with him, they knew this Jesus, and they were encouraging people to believe in this Jesus that they come to know. To characterize Christianity as blind belief is simply a straw man. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't those who believe Christianity blindly, um, or other religions or other worldviews for that matter. I believe some people trust governments and even the scientific community blindly. All I'm saying is that Christianity and Judaism, for that matter, the origins of our faith, was not built on sheer rumor, myth, or legend. Rather, it was built on claims that God revealed himself and acted in perceivable ways to people. This is especially apparent in the early disciples' claims of seeing Jesus. I want to share from um, Professor Gary Habermas, one of the leading historians on the resurrection. Um, He compiles the following quotes from non-Christian historians about the early claims of the disciples to seeing the resurrected Jesus. Bear with me. I think this is really um, important to our conversation. Even the highly critical New Testament scholar, Rudolf Bultmann, agreed that historical criticism can establish the fact that the first disciples came to believe in the resurrection and that they had thought they had seen the risen Jesus. Atheistic New Testament scholar Gerd Ludemann concludes, it may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Paula Fredrickson of Boston University comments, I know in their own terms what they saw was the raised Jesus, That's what they say, and then all the historic evidence we have afterwards attests to their conviction that that's what they saw. I'm not saying that they really did see the raised Jesus. I wasn't there. I don't know what they saw. But I do know that as a historian, they must have seen something. Now, these are non-Christian historians describing the same historical events, however, coming to different conclusions with a different interpretation. And my point here is simply that we are all on historical ground. The object of our faith did not exist in the realm of subjective feelings and emotions by some unknown religious person who wanted to write a nice story. He existed in Israel in the first century AD during the reign of Tiberius Caesar, and much has been written about him originating from the first century from enemies, followers, and those in between. Again, my goal this morning is not to produce an all-out apologetic or an all-out defense for the resurrection of Jesus, rather to demonstrate that faith is not the denial of reason or evidence and that faith and reason are indeed compatible. You follow me? Does that make sense? Okay, all right. So why all this history philosophy talk? We're done there. We're not going to go into more quotes in in history stuff. But if you want to talk to me afterward, I'd love to. Um, Why all this history and philosophy talk? 
demonstrating the compatibility between faith and reason is important because I believe it helps to reveal the true motives of, of the human heart. It removes the excuse that reason, logic, or evidence is preventing you from belief. For example, when I began to discover the evidence for Christianity in my early days of, um, of really being an agnostic, I recognized that I was claiming lack of evidence for Christianity really as a cover-up for my pride. So when the evidence was presented, the answer was either humble myself to the evidence or humble myself to where reason followed, or, as the Bible says, harden my heart or stiffen my neck against it. In this way, my pride was blinding me from reasoning clearly. And, and this is a phenomenon that we will see not just in religious circles. Pride, pride blinds us from true reason. To follow the evidence where it led, to reason clearly, I had to get past my pride to be able to actually think well about these things. The truth is, I naturally did not want to admit my need for God. I didn't want to be accountable um, to him. I didn't want to admit that I wasn't in control or that I didn't have all the answers. Um, I wanted to be worshipped, or in other words, I wanted to receive the praise of others. I wanted to control the narrative of my life. I wanted to be self-sufficient. I wanted to trust myself. And we can call this desire pride. This desire caused me to suppress the truth. And I was very good at using reason, logic, and knowledge to coddle and protect my pride. But my unbelief was the result of a pre-commitment to pride, not a pre-commitment to reason. Are you following that? I was, I was in unbelief not because I was being reasonable. I was in unbelief because I was being prideful, using my reason as an excuse for my unbelief. The Apostle Paul puts it this way. In Romans 1, he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has, has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Now Paul here is tracing the general story of humanity over time. I'm particularly referring to the pagan world or the non-believing world. Now although he is talking about pagans or non-believers, non-Christians or even non-Jews, um, it would be naive to think that once we become a Christian our truth-suppressing pride disappears. When I chose to follow Jesus, God did not zap me with lightning and remove all of my temptation towards self-deification, self-worship. Right? I wished that would make this walk a lot easier. <laughs> but when I began to follow Jesus, rather the Holy Spirit began to expose how deep this truth-suppressing pride goes in my own heart. And ever since then, it's been a walk with him to help see where pride is blinding me from the truth. One of the most frequent topics that God addresses throughout the biblical story um, is pride and unbelief, but not in the pagan, non-Christian, non-Jewish world. Actually, it's more frequent him opposing pride and unbelief in the heart of his people, in the heart of those who claim his name. Jesus did not come to preach hypocrisy to the pagan world. He came to preach hypocrisy to the religious people, the people who bore the name of God. So we're going to switch gears, kind of talking about unbelief in the, the um, pagan, non-believing world. And we're going to talk about um, unbelief in a, in a hardened heart in the Christian world. In, in what happens to us when, when we begin to harden our hearts and we begin to allow pride to blind us from seeing the truth. What does this look like? What does it look like for Christians to slowly develop hard, unbelieving hearts? 
throughout the New Testament, a major theme that is repeated and referred to many times is the Exodus. The authors look back on the Israelites who were led out of slavery in Egypt into the wilderness by Moses and compare them to us who left the slavery of sin and worldly ways of thinking or living to follow Jesus in a new way of life. Now, there's much to learn about the Israelites' journey out of Egypt and into the wilderness, but there's a specific passage in Deuteronomy that I think is pertinent to our conversation. So this is Moses recounting when God revealed himself to all the Israelites, right? Millions of Israelites in the wilderness, God reveals himself by appearing on Mount Sinai, and they hear his voice. Moses is recounting um, what took place um, and how the Israelites responded to God revealing himself. Deuteronomy 5, Moses says this, The Lord spoke these commands in a loud voice to your entire assembly from the fire cloud and total darkness on the mountain. He added nothing more. He wrote them on two stone tablets and gave them to me. All of you approached me with your tribal leaders and elders when you heard the voice from the darkness and while the mountain was blazing with fire. You said, look, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness and we have heard his voice from the fire. Yet uh, um, today we have seen that God speaks with a person, yet he still lives. But now why should we die? This great fire will consume us, and we will die if we hear the voice of our Lord, the Lord our God any longer. For who out of all of humanity has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the fire as we have and lived? Go near, and this is the, the people responding to Moses, go near and listen to everything the Lord our God says. Then you can tell us everything the Lord our God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me. He said, I have heard the words that these people have spoken to you. Everything they have said is right. If only they had such a heart to fear me and keep all my commands always so that they and their children would prosper forever. Are you catching that? The Lord said, yeah, everything they said was right. They saw my glory. They heard my voice. If only they had such a heart to keep my commands and to fear me. Seeing for the Israelites was not believing. This generation saw God's glory. They saw him appear in fire on Mount Sinai. They heard the voice of God. They begged God not to speak another word because it was such a terrifying voice. But their problem was not seeing. It was the stubborn, pride-filled heart that they had. They didn't want to entrust themselves to God. They didn't want to place their care into his hands. So although they saw all the evidence they needed, they still had hearts that wanted to be self-dependent, relying on, on their own way, their own ways of thinking, and didn't want to trust God. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, um, there are numerous accounts of after this event, the Israelites rebelling and grumbling and complaining against God, even though they saw his power and his faithfulness to take care of them. They didn't lack evidence. They lacked humble hearts that trusted God and turned to him for help, rather than accusing him of being untrustworthy. People will say things like, well, why doesn't God just show himself? If God just showed himself, then I would believe. He, he did. He did reveal himself to a large people group, and they still turned away from him. They didn't want to entrust themselves unto God. And now this isn't a story of just, just Israel. It's meant to stand as a story of the world. How easy is it for us as Christians to begin accusing God and say things like, well, if God would just fill in the blank, then I would. We justify disobedience and rebellion and hardened hearts, even accusations against God, and we, we blame God for not doing more on his part. But the truth is, it's not really on God. He's already sent his son, right? God has already proven his love and his faithfulness to humanity by the death of his son on the cross. It's not an evidence problem, it's a humility problem. 
And we struggle to entrust ourselves unto God because of that, that hardened heart or that, that stiffened neck that the Bible talks about. This tendency toward pride or this I want to be God complex in us will always be an ever-present temptation towards faithlessness. The author of Hebrews uses this picture of the Israelites to encourage us not to repeat how they responded to God despite hearing God's voice. He uses the story of the Exodus and traveling through the wilderness as a parallel for the Christians now after following Jesus to not harden their hearts against him after saying yes to him. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort or encourage one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. As we wander through the wilderness of life, we will be tempted toward unbelief. We will be tempted to disregard the truth of God's love and his goodness toward us, ultimately demonstrated not by favorable circumstances, not by things going our way, ultimately demonstrated by the love he showed on the cross when he died for us, ultimately demonstrated by the resurrection that demonstrated he was indeed true to his claims. Don't know what that was. (laughs) My final point is this. You should trust God based on the message of the cross, not your immediate circumstances. You should trust God based on the message of the cross, not your immediate circumstances. And when I say that, uh, when I talk about Christians being tempted toward unbelief, I'm not necessarily talking about outrightly rejecting Christianity. I'm 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 not necessarily talking about, although this happens, I'm not saying necessarily unbelief means that you're going to stop coming to church or you're going to give up being a Christian. I'm talking about the slowly doubting that God will answer prayer. I'm talking about slowly doubting that he will provide. Slowly doubting that he will guide you and speak to you. Slowly doubting that he cares for you. And over time, as we allow this doubt to accrue, we will in turn create an attitude that doesn't turn to prayer like we used to. That doesn't seek God in his word like we used to when these truths were fresh in our heart. Um, We will stop trusting God for breakthrough in in our marriages, in ministry, in family, in relationships. We slowly stop depending on God, and we will find ourselves slowly looking back to Egypt like the Israelites did in the wilderness. If we don't learn to trust God with humble hearts, then we will let unanswered prayer or lack of breakthrough justify our unbelief. In other words, we will deny or reinterpret evidence of our circumstances to suit our unbelieving heart. The same circumstances that God brings about to cultivate deeper trust, intimacy, and dependency on him are the same circumstances that can foster unbelief, separation, and cause you to seize control or depend on yourself. God could could be trying to strengthen your patience and ability to hope, but unanswered prayer has made you bitter and angry. God could be trying to strengthen your endurance, but difficult circumstances have convinced you that he has abandoned you. 
God could be trying to draw you nearer to trust him more, but discomfort and pain has caused you to lose trust and protect yourself. The difference between our response to God in these trials or in these difficult circumstances is the heart of the person responding, not the circumstance. Humility will cause us to cling to God through the trial and will allow us to draw closer to him as a result. But pride will separate us from him as we try to seize control in our own power and in our own wisdom. And if we're not careful, we will allow that pride to turn into accusations against God, forgetting what he did on that cross and how much he actually does love us. And this isn't, don't misunderstand me, this isn't to minimize suffering or trials. This isn't to make light of the pain and the things that we will face as Christians. Our tears and our pain was, is real, just as was the hunger and the worry and the fear in the Israelites as they were wandering through the wilderness. It was hot in that desert. They were without food. They had family and children that they had to provide for. It wasn't like it was an easy thing they were going through. It was difficult. But God was still asking them to trust him in the midst of the difficulty. Will we choose in the midst of difficult circumstances to do it with God, to continue to seek him and wait for him, even though the waiting can be hard, even though the waiting can be long in specific seasons? Or will we give up doing it with him and go our own way and slowly after going our own way begin to accuse him for wrong against us? Will we make excuses? Will we blame it on the evidence, quote unquote, that God doesn't hear you or doesn't love you? Or will we look to the cross? Will we look to the love of God proven by the resurrection and choose to follow the God who gave his life to us, for us no matter what? We have to resolve in our hearts that, God, I'm going to follow you. I'm going I'm to follow you wherever this life goes. And I'm not going to allow my circumstances to um, justify my unbelief. Rather, I'm going to look at the cross and the promise of your word. And I believe that this is what Jesus was, was saying as he was quoting Deuteronomy 8, where he says, man should not live by bread alone, but on the word, or, or by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil was trying to tempt Jesus. If you really are the son of God, if he really loves you, if he's really with you, if he's really anointed you, why are you out here starving? Why did the spirit leave you um, to starve in the wilderness? And Jesus says, my sonship is proven by the fact that he is with me. He is training me. I am, I am dependent on him. I am reliant on him. And that is what a true son or daughter looks like. So I want to encourage us this morning. Let us respond to God with believing hearts. Let us not allow the difficulty of our circumstances or what we may call evidence build a case against God. Rather, let us choose to believe, no, God is good. He's demonstrated his love for me on that cross. And though I may not understand this season, though the, the season currently may be difficult and dry and silent, and I may be failing to understand why these things are happening let me not start to build a case based on these circumstances. Rather, let me build a case on the love of God demonstrated by Jesus. As we close this morning, um, I want to offer an opportunity to anyone who has not decided to follow Jesus. Um, so if you guys will, for the sake of privacy, if you can bow your heads and close your eyes. Maybe you've uh, been acquainted with Christianity and you've been acquainted with the things of God before. Um, maybe you've given up on, on following Jesus and you have found that um, your way is better or, or, or have been falling into the lie that we can make it on our own. I want to offer you um, an opportunity this morning to respond to Jesus and make a decision and say, Lord, I want to follow you. Lord, I, I want to respond to, to the God who loved me enough to send his son and to die for me. Um, God, I don't want to use reason or logic or evidence as an excuse anymore um, to, to, that, that, that coddles my unbelief. 
If that's you here this morning, I want to ask you to just slip your hand up that I can see it and, and pray for you. Is there anyone here this morning who wants to respond to God in that way? Who wants to turn to Jesus? Say, Lord, I, I don't want to anymore. Thank you, ma'am. Say, Lord, I don't want to use excuses anymore. I want to follow you. If you slipped your hand up or if you, uh, you wanted to, um, why don't you join me in these words as we, uh, as we just turn to God in our hearts. And again, this isn't, these words don't save you, but um, I want to help you. Um, I want to help your heart respond to Jesus in that way. <clears throat> Jesus, we thank you for being a trustworthy God. Thank you, Lord, that um, you have demonstrated your love to us and to me, not simply by good circumstances, although we long for good circumstances. You demonstrated your love for us by the death on the cross, your willingness to come and save humanity, your willingness to suffer, all to bring us back to yourself. Lord, I, I may have gone astray in the past. I may, I may have looked at other idols and other ways of, of being self-dependent. But Lord, today, I choose you. I turn to you as my God, as my Savior, as my King. And I say, Lord, I don't know where this life will take me, but I want to follow you through it. And Lord, I pray that um, as we make that decision in our hearts this morning, I ask that you would bless us with your presence and that you would give us the courage to take the next steps in this journey with you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, we're going to close with a time of worship. Um, just to respond to God with, with a heart that says, God, I trust you. Um, God, I am sorry for when I have allowed unfavorable circumstances cause me to build a case against you. Um, forgive me when I've forgotten the love you've already demonstrated. Um, I, I want to encourage us to, to enter into a time of worship just with hearts full of thanksgiving, saying, God, I, 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 I forgot. I, I've been led astray. I, I've, been, I've, I've been too focused on the difficulty of my circumstance rather than the goodness of God that, that you demonstrated. So why don't we stand to our feet? Feel free to, um, to come pray at these altars. Make a space. And, and just a way, a, a, physical, um, a physical response to God saying, God, I'm not trusting you here and I want to. God, I've, I've, I've disregarded you here and, and that's no more. So I want to encourage whether you just prayed that prayer for the first time today um, or you've been a Christian for 30 plus years, come respond to God. Come um, bring your trust to him. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turn.
Father, we thank you that you are faithful in every season, in every moment, in every difficulty, in every triumph. You are faithful, Lord. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would encourage our hearts to be reminded that you are good. Let us not be discouraged by difficult circumstances. Rather, let us lift our heads unto you, God. Thank you, Lord. May we have encouraged hearts as we leave here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us and worshiping with us this morning. Um, if you still want to stay and pray, um, these altars are open. If not, we will see you on Wednesday. Be blessed.